Zatujci. 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 Welcome to the Blind Podsman. We are a podcast dedicated to all things Zatuichi. I am Patrick with my co-host Jason. Hey Patrick, good to be back. Hey Jason, how's uh, how's your week been? Um, stressful, trying to catch all those Pokemon and whatnot. You know it is. Have you been playing Pokemon Go? Not very much, no. It's just in the news, so I thought I'd mention it. Have you been trying it out? Um, I downloaded it, but I haven't really had a chance to play it too much, which is frustrating because I kind of live in like... Um, the hustle and bustle part of town, and every three feet is a Pokemon stop, where i still not entirely sure exactly what a Pokemon stop does. But um, as you may know, like I've mentioned before, I live in Arizona, so it's 110 degrees outside constantly. It's very... It's going to take a lot to get me to leave the house. And yeah. I don't think Pokemon Go is going to be the thing that does it. Right. Um, watching movies is something that you can do in the uh, cool... Slumber of your own home. Slumber. Exactly. I don't know why it's, you wouldn't be sleeping during these films, especially not this one. We're talking about uh, uh, The Tale of Zatoichi Continues. It's, yep. Uh, again, 1962 film and the second installment of the Zatoichi series. And keep in mind that this came out uh, same year as the first one. So, yep. Uh, and uh, I believe all three of the first, Zatu- the first three Zatoichi films all came out within... I believe the same year in general, uh, between 62 and 63. So they managed to, I believe they got this one out within a few months of uh, the first one, but I'm not entirely sure. I couldn't find a concrete month release date for it. Yeah, neither could I. Um, but still, churning them out at a high rate. So you can get the impression that when these films first came out, or at least when the first film came out, that there was uh, quite a draw to the character and a public that wanted to see more of this uh, blind swordsman. Which is interesting because I wonder, um, I, I think I mentioned this in our last episode, I wonder if they were expecting there to be such a, a big reception of Zatoichi because it, it almost seemed like the film wasn't being set up to have a sequel mm. as he gave up his sword and um, seems like he was shrugging off the life of a swordsman at the end of the first film. But Yeah, you could definitely let it go at that point. Um, I like the way that this film picks it up, though. I really didn't anticipate them to have any continuity at all, but was fairly stunned to see how much continuity there was. And we'll discuss that as it comes about. But Of course. But first off, um, should note, as we made note last time, that this is a uh, different director than last time. Uh, so for the first film, we had Kenji Misumi, and for the tale of Zatoichi Continues, we've got Kazuo Mori. So somebody new at the helm, uh, somebody new at sound design also. If you'd uh, like to know... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, if you'd like to know an interesting fact about Kazuo Mori, um, do you remember The Blind Menace, the uh, Shintaro Katsu film, uh, where he plays a rapist and murderer who is blind? 
yeah, the one you mentioned. Yeah, you were talking about that last week, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kazumori was the director of that film, so he's already dipped his toe into the blind swordsman uh, mythos, I suppose. I guess, or the more more nefarious one, but at least with the same actor. The Ghoul Summers at the, the <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the more ghoulish version. And um, we've also got somebody new doing music. We talked a bit about the score last time and how unique it was at times, and how like uh, it would get melodramatic at, in only very rare parts. Uh, here, it's a little bit more, um, uh, I don't want to say conformist, but it sounds it sounds like a very typical like 1960s samurai film score. It plays it very safe, um, yeah. especially compared to like we were talking about with the, uh, the first movie. Um, it's, uh, they really don't, with the music in this film, it's very like, of the time, like you were saying, like of the time samurai, you know, picture. Whereas the last one was, uh, music wise, was a lot more experimental and out there. Yeah, I saw this film soundtrack described as just being more melodramatic uh, than the first one throughout, uh, which also kind of fits the the tone of the film. Like it, this film is uh, not relying so much on the on the. Uh, introducing this character as a blind swordsman so there's there's not as many silent moments in this it's very action-packed yeah very fast and this is a this is a very packed 72 minutes we should mention this is one of the shorter zatoichi films Mm -hmm. um an hour and 12 minutes which you know by any standard for a film is extremely short um so i mean it's a very it's a very thick 72 minutes there's they don't have a whole lot of time to waste, and they don't really waste any time. Um, it's it's almost at a breakneck pace. It's just constantly one thing after another happening. Yeah. Um, from the very start, uh, which shows us not Zatoichi, but a uh, band of, I guess, kind of uh, lower-income farmers or workers, kind of scruffy, getting going about their day, trying to get their... Uh, commute to work started by taking a ferry across a river and we're almost immediately introduced to um, some of the ne'er-do-wells that we're almost certain Zatoichi is going to encounter. They seem like a, a Yakuza gang or some kind of rough group of lords men that come by, but they essentially take over the ferry, uh, kick all the common people off and use it for their own means and methods. Um, almost like as a matter of fact, not in this, hey, we're going to mess up the town sort of way, but like, hey, we need this boat. We need it more than you do, so get out. A very polite piracy. Right. Um, but what they don't notice is that there's a sleeping blind masseur uh, still in the boat who is very casual and nonchalant about what's going on. doesn't seem to take notice at all in what is starting to become like the Zatoishi fashion of dealing with bullies. Like, oh, this is happening? I guess I'll have to um, roll with the punches. And he kind of does when they decide to shove him off this boat. And this is only like five or ten minutes in, uh, very early on in the film. The gang leader tries to kick, throws Zatoichi off, and we see this really interesting shot of uh, Zatoichi basically like flipping backwards 
I thought this part was really cool. Yeah. Uh, flipping backwards, grabbing the guy's sword, and then just very lightly cutting him on the face. And, and I actually rewatched this because I didn't see everything that the camera was picking up at first because it just looks like he kind of falls backwards and there's a glint in his left hand. Doesn't really seem to mean anything, but then like the guy turns to his compatriots and it's somebody else who notices that he's bleeding on his face. And then he realizes his sword is missing too. Mm-hmm. And that's basically like how the film goes just a few minutes into it. Uh, very, very fast action and uh, it, it just pops. Like it keeps going that quickly. Like these guys start trying to find this blind swordsman and as they land, as they dock on land, that's when the continuity from the first film starts occurring. Because they're like, that guy was blind, right? Because they could tell when they were first encountering him as he you know, tried to look to them. They noticed he couldn't see. They immediately call him out as being blind. And then they also connect his swordsman skills for being able to withdraw that cane and cut somebody in the same motion without making it seem like anything at all. And um, yeah, they're basically putting two and two together and saying, that's got to be Zatoichi. He's the guy who killed that samurai uh, between those two gang wars that was going on. And at this point in time in the film, you're not made aware, but as uh, Zatoichi stated in the first film, that he would return within one year to uh, Harate, Harate Miki's grave to yes. pay his respects. This is that one year later as he is heading towards the uh, Aoki village. Yeah, as we find out later, and it was great how they kind of like dropped hints that that was what was happening. Like I actually got excited that they were connecting so much uh, for that previous story. And, uh, and yeah, that's exactly why he's on the boat in the first place. Like he's simply just going back to pay the respects that he vowed that he would. And um, it's actually, what I think is interesting about this film compared to the first one is this is more of a Zat, this is more of Zatoichi, I guess, finding himself in a situation, like sort of walking into a situation instead of being like the catalyst of it. Whereas like in the first film, it was about him, um, I guess, repaying a favor to Sukigoro or just looking to make money. Um, agrees to help fight in their gang war. Mm. Whereas in this one, Zatoichi's not, as you know, the old Jackie Chan saying is, not looking for trouble, but trouble finds him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is uh, a man who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, only because he's trying to do something noble. In the first one, yeah, Zatoichi's kind of nefarious. He does all those monologues about like how he's just a gangster, a hired... Uh, sword basically and um as we'll get into it in a bit a lot uh, a lot of this is triggered by the fact that he massages the wrong man um as he uh i believe he gets work massaging a local gang boss who turns out to be insane and not insane in any kind of like um hannibal lecter kind of insane but like uh takes like mallet to the head insane yeah, yeah, like, uh, it's funny how this comes about, too, because, again, like, this is Zatoichi seemingly stumbling through life on accident, um, but happening to show up where he's needed. So he ends up finding the place where he's supposed to do his, uh, perform this massage, uh, 
because he's just kind of strolling down an alley and decides to relieve himself. He's got to he's got to uh, urinate against something, so he figures he's in a dark enough alley or can kind of assume that nobody's around. But then uh, one of the Lord's assistants just pops his head out as Zatuichi's finishing up and you know interrupts him, saying like, "Oh, are you the are you the masseuse?" Whenever you're finished, please come inside. I thought that was pretty, pretty funny. But he's like, "Oh yeah, thank you. I'm, thanks for uh, waiting." Now um, we actually just did, and this is my fault, of course, because I decided to jump right to, uh, right to um, the uh, catalyst of Zatuichi's troubles in this film. But um, we are also introduced at. Uh, the scene right after Zatoichi confronts those bandits to um, Yoshiro, the uh, character played by uh, Sa- Tomi Saboro Wakayama. Right. And his assistant, who I feel is kind of a non-character. But um, uh, there's actually, yeah, Tomi, Tomi Saboro Wakayama has a lot of prestige in the Chanbara film and the Chanbara genre because of Lone Wolf and Cub as he stars as the uh titular Lone Wolf. Yeah, and as we were talking about before recording uh those were actually directed by the director of the first Zatoichi film kind of bringing it full circle again. Yep, uh Kenji Misumi. Right. So after uh, Kenji Misumi did Zatoichi won. He did many other films and then another uh, stellar samurai series with the guy who would play Zatoichi's brother. Who is also coincidentally Shintaro Katsuki's brother in real life as well. Yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, kind of weird intertwining uh, crossing paths with some of these folks who worked on uh, cinema, which I guess makes sense. Like These are all big names. People who had like stellar careers so right and a lot of it, a lot of it comes from um just because of the because like these are all people who are stars of the genre i mean all just like with horror movies like you're going to see a lot of the same actors in a bunch of different like horror films because they specialize in this one particular uh, uh genre of film um I think Shintaro Katsu never really strayed too far away from uh, historical samurai pictures. I believe Thomas Saburo Wakayama didn't either. I know that he was in two American films, uh, Black Rain from 1991 right. and uh, Bad News Bears Go to Japan in 1978, where he played a Yakuza <laughs> boss. Um, <laughs> I, did, I, I missed that one. I remember Black Rain, but yeah, he didn't stray too far at all, did he? He was uh, no. still playing like... Uh, rough characters. I think um, Shintaro Katsu's career kind of just at the end of his career, I mean, it was pretty much just all period pictures until his death. I mean, until he retired from uh, making films. But um, I can't say for certain because I haven't seen a lot of Shintaro Katsu movies, but that's just kind of what his IMDb page uh, implies. Ah, okay. Um, it should be noted that. Uh, uh, Wakayama does appear in Zatoichi in the Gold in the Chest of Gold, which is a later film. Which sounds, I, I mean, we, we're not there yet. But when I came across that title, I have to admit it just reminded me of like City Slickers Two, uh, the Legend of Curly's Gold, uh, which is sounds, 
I guess says more about me than anything else since I'm, that's the first movie that came to mind. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I haven't really read in. I tend to try to not to read into the later films at all because I want to go into each movie uh, with fresh eyes. Like, I, I actually, until we get to the end of this episode, I haven't pulled up the synopsis for the next Zatoichi film. Um, I'm curious to see who he plays in this movie as we'll get into it a little bit later on about the fate of his character. Um, I mean, we should mention before, as we have mentioned our first episode, I mean, these, this is a spoiler podcast, so we're not really gonna hold back too much. Yeah. But first impressions of, um, this kind of stark samurai, uh, that encounters a sleeping Zatoichi, like he sees him first just asleep, correct? Yes. And uh, here's the the coming footsteps of uh, another gang and uh, basically takes out this small pack of uh, what we can assume are Yakuza or Lordsmen. It's the same people who hijacked the boat. They're coming for Zatoichi, but the samurai, this other samurai, steps away and comes back in to uh, make short work of them. What did you think was going on with this character uh, and his sidekick at that when first encountering? Did you think that he was out to kill Zatoichi or? Um, no, I I actually feel like um, I actually feel like him coming across Zatoichi was a coincidence entirely. I I believe he was going to uh, he was affiliated with the Yakuza boss that Zatoichi worked for in the first film. Yeah, Sukegoro. Uh, I don't think the connection was ever made that he was there because of Zatoichi. I don't think he was actively looking for Zatoichi. Right. But I just as Zatoichi fell into this situation, I believe that this character also um, had the... Had, once he found out that Zatoichi was, you know, nearby, decided that he would pursue him. Um, it, it's... I, I'm also curious as to why he didn't confront Zatoichi while he was sleeping, but I suppose it's more of a an honor thing than anything else. Yeah, possibly. Like some people look vulnerable when they sleep, but Zatoichi looks super vulnerable. And not because he he is dealing with blindness. I mean obviously he's asleep at the time, so it wouldn't matter. But he's just sprawled out. Like that's the funny thing. He he basically escaped this ship of uh marauders swims to the shore and then just hangs up all of his clothes and decides to nap it out for a while. Like he is sprawled out. And during this battle, I don't think he wakes up, does he? No, he doesn't. He's uh, <laughs> he is out like a light, yeah. Um, there's also an interesting characteristic with uh, this character. And just as Zatuichi has no eyesight, this character only has one arm. And I didn't notice this until almost the very end of the film. Like I thought he was just, he had his his uh, dominant hand out and then he just kept his other arm like just like in his tucked. coat yeah, yeah just tucked away <laughs> so. i mean re- realistically that's how they showed him as only having one arm is mm-hmm. they just told him to tuck his arm underneath uh, his costume but um no it was something i picked up immediately because of uh it just seemed it seemed to stick out with the way he fought like uh, while he had his, uh, while he had, of course, you know, his sword and his dominant only hand, it seemed that he was putting almost all of his weight into that arm. 
So uh, it, okay. immediately I could tell that like his, there was whether he only had one arm or whether you know he had a disabled hand. Uh, either way, like something was prominently something. There was something like wrong with his arm. And although they don't make it entirely clear right in that scene, you do learn later as to why it is that he is missing that arm. Right. Uh, right. I should also mention in that in that. Uh, with that said, this is also um, one of the first instances where you're actually getting a picture of what Zatoichi's life looked like before he became a wanderer. Um, as the a story, as a story of betrayal in his past kind of unfolds, which is what brings these two characters together once again. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get into that later. Let's. Fast forward back to uh, him massaging that uh, that lord. I want to say Yaku is a boss, but it's not. Yeah, he's the lord of the house of Kuroda, um, and he's a bit he's a bit kooky. He's a bit off kilter. Yeah, doesn't it? Nobody explains why, but there are two uh, assistants, like two lead men, in the room at the time as he's getting uh, as Zatoichi is massaging this man. And Zatoichi's picking up that this person he's massaging um, is is a little off, but he's very polite about it. He's like, well, I've never had a massage like this before, and um, you're definitely one-of-a-kind sort of client. And um, it's, uh, it's weird because I feel like, and maybe it just goes to show because of uh, how low-level, like, in society, a blind masseur must have been back then. But I feel like simply paying off Zatuichi to not because the whole the whole issue here is that Zatuichi, of course, realizes that this guy is crazy. As if that information got out, it would destroy the reputation of that house. So the retainers send a group of samurai to kill him. Um, I feel like paying him off probably would have been just fine. And I believe uh, Zatuichi actually has a line about that. Yeah, yeah, he, he says it later. <laughs> That not only was he not planning on mentioning anything to anybody, but simply paying him off would have been enough. Yeah. But again, um, as is the case with some of these earlier films, as I've been finding, he's forced into a situation where he's got to defend himself. Um, Right. Of course, the people who are around him, unlike the uh, gang members he encountered earlier, they're not putting two and two together. They don't quite have their fingers on the pulse of what Yakuza are doing. They're more of high-level government. So they don't consider this traveling blind masseur to be the one and only Zatoichi who was there a year earlier. They might not even know what happened a year earlier in that area. I actually, I think he's not quite in Ioka yet. I think he's in the town, maybe like the town before he does hit Ioka, because later on uh, these retainers travel to Ioka to speak with boss Sugiboro, or Sugigoro, about uh, possibly having Zatoichi killed. That's right. Yeah, and he does make one other uh, ferry trip to get over to that island, or rather have quicker access to that city. And it, it seems that there is a level of infamy established with Zatoichi's character, in, um, I guess, in this world, because as, at least with the first film, it's hard to really... Uh, gauge the scope of that but as with the first film it was mentioned that Zatoichi does have a reputation of being an amazing swordsman for a guy who can't see 
And of course, earlier when this film, when the pirates put together that this was the legendary blind swordsman, um, I wonder if the samurai or the retainers were aware of this guy, of Zatuichi or his reputation, or if they simply just didn't even think about it. They probably didn't even think about it. Like or, the way that the, uh, oh, what? Or like they just, they knew about it and they didn't care, you know? But it's it's hard to, what were you saying though? I'm sorry. That's fine. Um, I, I got the impression that uh, they were not aware. Like four of them go out to meet this, go out to perform this uh, action, this murder um, of a traveling blind masseur. And then later on, like Sukigoro, who has a bit more intel about the guy, says like, yeah, six men won't even do it. You're going to need way more than that to, to make a dent on Zatoichi. Um, so a Yakuza boss who had seen him operate, who manages people, knew better, would have known better just to send like four people after Zatoichi. Of course. And, and four, four people even seems excessive to begin with, but... Yeah, and that helps build the mythos of this character. Um, and then we even get to see it. Like in the first film, Tell Zatoichi, um, the first encounter of Zatoichi use, unsheathing his sword, having to use his sword against, I think it was two people following him after a meeting with uh, Hajime. Right. Um, people from the, uh, the, was it the Sasagawa gang? I think that Hajime uh, was fighting for was it Ayoka? It was the yes, it was Sasagawa. Okay, yeah, two people from the Sasagawa gang are following Zatoichi out to the woods, and it's done in complete darkness and silence. Um, he just says, "I'll put out the lantern, so we'll be even." And you hear the uh, the groans of two men. Of course, there's no like set fully work for the swords um, slicing through anybody, so. As there isn't in this film either. Correct. And, uh, and yet in this one with the, the four trailers, that, the four samurai that come after him, um, it's very well lit. Like it's supposed to be at night, but I guess that we can assume that's a very moonlit night. Um, I, think, I think we're at the, and as early as it is, we're at the point where it's safe to transition to a more action-packed story. Um, because we've established this character already, like it's okay to start to really like show him off, especially because I imagine that was kind of the demand of what the crowd was looking for. Because mm-hmm. they want to see more of this man's, you know, amazing skills. Yeah, and and especially how like uh, the actor Katsu was able to mimic this or perform this style, like that quick unsheathing underhand uh, draw of the of his cane sword into like a quick attack and then other attacks so we see Zatoichi take on these four men and it is lightning fast his Um, style is also very unique like he almost like crouches like a like a monkey almost yeah his stance has has like a martial arts style that is not being displayed by the uh, fencing style of his opponents I I'm I'm kind of curious to see if they maybe delve into his training in the later movies and maybe we'll get an idea of like why he fights like that. But it's really unique. Like I don't think I've really ever seen a movie with a style like that before. Yeah, it's very quick. It's almost, it looks chaotic sometimes like the way he's going about it, but it always looks dangerous. 
Like even today, I think that's something that really holds up about these films is that, especially with this scene, when he's basically being flanked by two men at a time uh, between the four men that he ends up taking down, he's striking them all um, super fast. And you really have to like, if you want to see everything, you would have to slow down the film to a degree to see that he's actually like, he's drawing the blade along these men's torsos and whatnot. So it's choreographed. It just looks so um, dangerous. <laughs> it looks right. weird. It's, um, it, it seems like, it, it seems like it's very, it's a very offensive style too. Cause it, he seems to do very little defending. Like, I think it's just a matter of speed and how fast he can dispose of his enemies as opposed to like concentrating on defending himself first. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of offense to it, and it all these fights go very quickly too. Like, I mean, these four are dispatched within a few seconds. Even I think the fight's over in like five to ten seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ichi moves into to escape into a I thought was a bar, but I guess it's a brothel. Yeah, I, I guess that's the case, and whatever whatever the case it might be, like I took it as a a bard like an izakai or something. Um, but that might just be the lobby area. Like if you think about, I guess a, a Western comparison might be Old West saloons where there was definitely like a public area at the bottom right. and, then, and upstairs. Um, that might be the case here. And and yeah, uh, we encounter two people. I thought they were geishas, but I, I guess they are prostitutes in this, right? Yes. And they're complaining that they're not finding any work that evening because everybody else seems to be in some sort of uh, mob offensive. All the men seem to be out looking for uh, a blind masseur as part of this this uh, recent charge. They don't know exactly who's behind it, but they're looking for this blind masseur who um, is presumably going to be taken down. And Zatoichi, as you mentioned, is in that same spot. Uh, listening in and um this is also where he you actually see him sort of uh revel in the company of a woman as in the first one he seemed standoffish with uh tane or tate i believe it's tate was her name um he he seems to become attached to this to one of the prostitutes who reminds him of a woman that he was once in love with named uh, Chio. Yeah, and when he first says, like, oh, you smell like her, I I thought he was talking about Otane from the first right. one. Uh, but, um, again, going along with that continuity. But it turns out there's this other backstory that we're about to be introduced to, um, which is kind of cut short, or moved along, I guess you could say, by a... Uh, by two other people entering. It's the samurai and his uh, young ward from earlier, the one-armed samurai. Right. And at which point, almost an identical conversation happens with the uh, the same prostitute, um, with mm-hmm. him commenting that she looks just like this woman that he was in love with, um, telling the same story that once, that he was once with, uh, the, he was once in love with a woman who left him. And Zatoichi, of course, reiterates the same tale about how she left him when he found out, or when she found out he was blind. Um, 
yeah, or couldn't could no longer deal with the blindness or something. And oh, uh, and as of like right now, you and just that like a little bit of dialogue, we've established the relationship of these two characters, who before uh, before that didn't really seem to have anything familiar. Were didn't seem familiar with one another because back at the lakeside when Zatoichi was sleeping, um, Yoshiro did uh, barely acknowledged him. Yeah, uh, and what's odd about this scene to me, and I may have to go back and rewatch it, but um, Zatoichi eventually reveals himself uh, because he had been hidden behind some barrels of sake or something. Uh, but he hears how this conversation is going where this man is suddenly demanding that this prostitute um, keep him company for the evening, and she keeps rebuffing him, like just saying, no, I'm not going with you tonight. I've got somebody else. And Zatoichi reveals himself, but they still don't engage each other. Which I, I thought was really odd because it, you almost weren't really entirely sure that he knew that Zatoichi was there because like, it seemed like um, Yoshiro had no rebuttal to anything that Zatoichi was saying. You're, you're seeing him look at the area that Zatoichi is in, but he says nothing. Yeah, and even as he goes and sits back down at the table, it's not like he's distracted or looking anywhere else. In fact, Zatoichi presents his own monologue. This is right. where Zatoichi reveals that, like, yeah, I knew a woman named uh, Chiro too and lost her to uh, a, an evil, troublesome man. And I was so filled with rage, I lobbed his arm off. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's the line looking back at it now, like, he says that almost as a reminder of the um, the skill that he has with a sword over over this competitor in front of him. So without saying like, "Hey, you, I messed you up before. Don't forget it." He's revealing like the story. Um, he's telling it as a narrative, like, "I did it before, and I can do it again." You have two. And you had two arms, and I can make it zero if I wanted. <laughs> and um, it's just. I guess it just strikes me as odd. Like, I wouldn't say it's poor filmmaking, but it's just strange that there was no follow-up to this until the very end of the movie. Yeah, this was the this was the only unusual scene so far, like, between this and even the first film. Like, I thought the first film was very well done throughout, but this this part where it's uh, this uh, just heavy tension that's filling the room, and especially as more gets revealed later i was thinking back to this scene like why didn't why didn't anything happen <laughs> like why was it just that tension and uh maybe they were trying to avoid larger trouble like we see this uh, one-armed swordsman basically try to i mean except for that first scene where we see him like take an entire small gang essentially defending zatoichi's sleeping body uh it was almost as if he was saying, no one gets to kill you but me. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. It's just, and I guess that brings it back around again to, like, why didn't you just do it then? In, right. In a mostly empty bar or brothel. But anyway, yeah, odd scene. And so far, like, the, the only scene that had me a little bit, a little bit uh, confused in the series. And, of course... Um... The uh, oh man, I, I really wish I would have gotten her name. Osetsu. Oh, Setsu. Setsu. Um, 
they decide to go someplace to be alone. And, of course, on cue, the, uh, the uh, retainer samurai show up searching for Zatoichi. And, of course, the, the bar owner covers for him and says, no, I haven't seen him. No yeah. one, even, I don't remember whether or not Yoshiro and his assistant were there at the time or if they had already left. They are, because they overhear, there's a shot of them uh, overhearing this angry mob talk about who, they looking, who they're looking for. And even they don't reveal that information. They just give knowing glances to each other saying like, oh shit, they're looking for Zatoichi as well. And uh, decide just to keep sipping on their drinks. And um, of course, we uh, we cut to the next morning in a beach house where, and I thought this was a very James Bond moment. Yeah. Um, the woman, Zatoichi is on the beach. This is, of course, the next morning. And the woman comes out of the hut exclaiming that she felt like a different person. and uh, In a good I, way, apparently. Like, she's <laughs> very relaxed. Um, I felt that was a very James Bond moment <laughs> for uh, Zatoichi, although I'm not totally sure any of the Bond films existed at this point. I think there was probably... I think hmm. Dr. No, maybe, I think was out um, by 1962, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, but what's what's a great like underdog moment for this is that it's Satoichi. Like he's he's a guy who tries to do good, but he's mostly unkempt. Like he yeah. looks kind of schlubby. So it's it's nice that. Uh, well, he's good with his hands. I, there you go, and that's what I thought it was at first. Like my initial thought was like, oh, he must have given her a massage. Oh, never mind. <laughs> and just going back a few steps as they're leaving. Um, the bar directly before like the encroaching mob descends on this on the brothel be- uh, in the preceding scene we have um, what I'm guessing is a trope for these movies Zatoichi handling money like it seems to be that people don't anticipate how much he's giving or how he can even tell like what he's handling as far as like when he's paying for something or giving money out and this happens a few times in this film, but this is like the first time, and he's paying uh, the the old uh, like barkeep, I guess, the old man behind the bar who's uh, dishing out drinks. You know, I hate to say it, I think he might that guy might be a pimp. Like, oh, he could be a pimp. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's talking to uh, the pimp there, who just looks like a kindly old man. Like, I guess I didn't read into a pimp aesthetic with him. But, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I mean, he's no sugar bear, but I mean, he seems—he just seems like a. Maybe that's just how it was. It's hard to say. I, I'm not totally sure. Neither was I. Like in that case, he seemed to be paying for the drink specifically, right? And he hands him what the guy considers to be like too much payment. So the the fact that this guy says anything to Zatoichi when he could have just taken it and said nothing. He's like, oh, no, this is too much. And the guy's like, no. Zatoichi responds with, no, buy, buy the uh, house another round. And that may have been Zatoichi, like, smoothing things over. Or it could be that, like, this is the one thing that Zatoichi doesn't really know. Because it happens often. People are like, no, don't give me money for this or that. And he's like, uh, no, it's for something else. And it happens later, too. <laughs> so. and, 
And it's odd because every, at least so far, um, in the first film he was looking for work, and in this one he was also coming to town for work, and he seems to just constantly have money, like this constant stream of cash on him. Um, yeah. Maybe it goes with the gambling, because as although they don't really uh, dive into it in this film, in the first film it's you know it becomes known that he's a skilled gambler. Mm-hmm. There actually isn't any gambling in this movie, and... Um, also, there aren't really any cool tricks with his uh, his sword like there was in the first film. Like there weren't any demonstrations, which I think becomes a trope later on. Yeah, yeah, like the candle slicing scene from the first one. Right. Um, but, uh, of course, Zatoichi is ambushed at this beach house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the, uh, the other prostitute from the night before leads a, a small band of these men towards the shack where they where Zatoichi and uh, Setsu stayed over the night. And they give him the option to come outside um, to die as opposed to sullying up that beach house, which I guess is pretty polite. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Zatoichi, of course, comes outside and he promptly disposes of these men. Yeah, like takes, I think there's seven of them and he takes two of them out uh, wounds another two, and then the rest just take off. They flee. Right. The uh, smart. Yeah, the smarter three of the bunch for sure. And the last one, like one of the last wounded who can actually run for his life, is terrified, just screaming. And it's uh, it's done on a beach. And this is one of the times where we actually get to see like a close up on his face as he's about to take on these men. We didn't see it earlier. But it's almost, uh, I mean, it looks demon-like because he, he opens his eyelids and, of course, he can't focus on anything so his pupils are, like, going towards the top of his head. So it's this weird, it's a weird shot and it looks so cool and intimidating, too. Not to mention in the first film, which I thought was strange, was uh, Zatoichi opened his eyes completely at Sugigoro, um at the end before he left that's right yeah which i also believe is one of the like rare instances where you see him with his eyes completely open yeah and i mean i guess we can take that as his his uh coming into form like that's his way of of intimidation um it's almost instinct that he knows people would like try to look each other in the eye and since he can't do that he, right, he does the motion, and knows that he doesn't have to actually have sight to look somebody in the eye to connect with them on that, on that weird intimidating level. And what's another part that's interesting is like he gets all this intel from um, uh, Osetsu about who might be after him and why, because um, he had heard her mention it the night before. And he gets a little bit more of that information during this time that they're being domestic together. Uh, so he gives all that information to the men who actually enter. And that's another thing that happens with these films. It happened in the last one where he seems to have like this sixth sense about what's going on, but it's almost like this Sherlock Holmes and the, uh, in the, uh, his network, like Sherlock Holmes had this network of street urchins who would get him information. So he could always be on top. Uh, in any confrontation and that happens right. here. So like when those guys encounter him, they're taken aback. So that's like another thing that he does for 
intimidation and in having a leg up on his opponents is just knowing more or knowing as much as they do. And um, so at this point in time, uh, is uh, Setsu, mm-hmm. the, the prostitute, arranges for a Zatuichi to take a boat to uh, leave the area that he's in um, in order to um, head to Ioka. And I'm not actually sure at this point they've established that he's going to Ioka, but uh, of course, on his way there, the the show the samurai are aware that that's where he's going as they get there first to meet with boss Sugigoro. Mm-hmm. And I, it's interesting because they were allies in the in the first movie. Um, the maybe because of the connection between the two houses, since they're in such close proximity, um, it's arranged that Sugigoro would help kill Zatoichi. And at the same time, as fate would have it, um, Yoshiro and his assistant are also heading to Boss Sugigoro's house as well, to as they were told that they could stay there for an extended period of time, although they are promptly told to leave because, it, as it is revealed, um, Yoshiro is not a samurai, uh, but in fact a murderer and thief. Yeah, uh, he's an evil fraud. man. Right. So we've established that this character is a despicable person. Yeah, and just to play catch up with the uh, the mob of people going after Zatoichi in the previous instance, those are led by Boss uh, Kanbei. That's the guy who's meeting with Sukegoro and who wants to join forces with them to uh, to take down, or at least they contact Kanbei to take down uh, Zatoichi. I I thought Kanbei was one of the one of the retainers. So that was my understanding, but I I could be wrong. No, I you're right. You're right. It's I'm thinking of um the Lord the uh, assistant to the Lord from House Karuda. He's right. the one that contacts um uh Sugigoro. Sugigoro about disposing of Zatoichi. And then Sugigoro does he contacts Kanbei. So excuse me. Now maybe it seems like I mean, maybe it's because at this point uh, Zatuichi's killed about 12 of this guy's men, but this seems almost excessive that they're, like, literally trying to follow this man, you know, all over Japan, wherever he's going, as it's, you know, the reputation of this house is just that important. I feel like after he would have, realistically, after he would have left the village, they probably would have let it go. But, you know, then again, I'm not sure how close Ioka is to this village that he was in. And um, so at this point, uh, Zatoichi decides that he wants to come by and say hi. But he doesn't want to say hi to Sugigoro directly. He just wants one of the uh, one of the men living at the house to just let him know, hey, I stopped by to say hi, I'm in town. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think might be a warning in a way. Like he knows what's happening and maybe he's saying, hey, I'm here. But if you try something, you know, there's going to be trouble. And, um, but of course, uh, you know, Sugi Goro is made aware of Zatoichi's presence before he has a chance to leave. And of course, Kanbei's men are there. And, uh, this is also another interesting scene is Zatoichi is in a garden and, uh, one of Kanbei's men sneaks up on him, is about to 
strike him with a sword and Zatoichi calls him I, I forget exactly what he says, but he basically calls him out. Yeah, that was that was hilarious. It's a very I mean it's almost comedic the way that the scene is shot. Actually I believe it was Kanbei himself was going to do it. That's right. Yeah, Kanbei is basically in a structure has a large doorway, um, large opening, and Zatoichi has sat down on the stoop in front of the doorway just to take a load off. And Kanbei is very silently, uh, he peeks around a corner, almost like a silent film, he peeks around a corner and uh, gets an emotion preparing to strike. I believe he puts the sword over his own head to do like a downward strike on Zatuichi, and that's when Zatuichi uh, just basically says, hey, I don't think I know you. Who are you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. And it, it just catches him. It just completely uh, knocks him off guard. So Kanbei, as his, the actor is great, uh, guy playing Kanbei, because his face goes from like willing determination to take this life to just stunned disbelief and he like starts to lower his sword and he's he's a uh, throne like he's right. totally he in Zatoichi's game now he doesn't even know uh oh sorry about that um he's not even totally sure what to uh what to make of what just happened like he just he's completely floored and in fact his next response was literally just to introduce himself which i thought was really funny yeah and he doesn't even try to fool around with it. He's like, I'm Kanbei. I'm, that's me. That's my name. <laughs> um, and Suke Goro uh, also notices, like this is him encountering Zatoichi for the first time in a year, sees him, and Zatoichi either knows, like my instinct with these films is that Zatoichi knows Suke Goro is present, even though like he's taking... Sugiwara is taking careful steps to not make a sound or not make his presence known. It's almost as if like he's treating it as if Zatoichi could kind of see uh, first-hand man of, of the House of Karuda. Right, the Lord. Yeah. And it's like, Zat, uh, it's like Sugiwara is treating it as if Zatoichi could kind of see. So he's trying to make his presence unknown. And Zatoichi, in kind, doesn't let on that he knows that he's there, present, but he does say, oh, and when you say, when you see Sukegoro, uh, tell him there's no need to thank me for my assistance last year. So he, he's mentioning Sukegoro by name and kind of trying to, it's like, again, establishing that there's a connection between him and this in this boss, which almost gives the impression that he knows that he's there without, right. it's without a, directly it saying like, it. It seems like an intimidation tactic, like him basically saying, hey, I'm here, and if you try, you know, like he, he knows that these men are going to follow him. And yeah. basically he's saying, if you get involved with this, it's going to be your head. Yeah. So again, another instance of Zatoichi saying something without saying it directly. Right. And usually something intimidating. Um, so we, at this point, find ourselves reintroduced to Otane, who yeah. meets with Atuichi. Uh, this is a, what's interesting about this movie is 
it while I mean it's it's Tom obviously like it's not weird to hold have holdover characters, but um it seems almost like it seems interesting that they managed to keep these characters like they decided to do the holdover characters for even a year later, like Otane is still familiar with Zatuichi. It's kinda like a what are they up to now sort of thing. Um Otane's life I imagine is not terribly different. <laughs> no, nah, I mean there's another guy pining after, though this guy seems more stable. Like right. I, I guess he's a carpenter or something. Um and yeah. What she learns is that Zatoichi is in town uh, by word of mouth from folks in town who are wondering what all the uh, uh, the kerfuffle is about with Sugigoro's right. gang. She learns that he's nearby and decides to um, provide some intel about what's about to what's about to go down. And this is when Zatoichi's already made his way to the temple for the. Uh for the service that he paid to have. He actually, this is also another instance where he pays too much money as he gives a lot of money to these monks. Well, to the boy working at the temple that we saw in the, uh, in the first film for the service that is held for, uh, for Harate. Mm -hmm. And, um, on the, upon the anniversary of his death. Um, and this is where we're drawing to a climax to our film as the rest of the movie takes place in the graveyard of this temple. Um, as it stands, uh, the, the uh, Sugigoro informs uh, Kanabe that Zatoichi is headed to this temple to pay tribute to the samurai that he killed last year. And of course, now an entire army of Yakuza is coming to him. Um, this is, like you said, this is when Otane was informing him, hey, they're coming, at which point Zatoichi doesn't really so much as bat an eye at the idea. Um, going back to what you said earlier about Sugigoro saying that you're going to need a lot more than four men to take on uh, Zatoichi, which um, is a tremendous understatement from what we see next. Yeah, it's, it's scores and scores of these men. Uh, it, it's like the battle from the first movie which took place between two Yakuza gangs, except it's not the Yakuza gangs fighting each other. They're intently going after Zatoichi. So yes. first we see, I think it's Sukigoro's gang, correct? Yeah. Uh, Sukigoro's gang and then Kanabe's gang arrives a little bit later. No, I'm sorry. Kanabe's game gang arrives first. Okay. And then, uh, Sukigoro's gang arrives later. As backup. Right. Right. So yeah, um, they find Zatoichi at the cemetery in Zatoichi, knowing what's going down. It's like, we can't do this here. Come on, cemetery. Right. Let's go somewhere else to do this. Uh, let's be respectful about it, at least. And um, he gives his hat to Otane, uh, and he's about to say, like, in case I die, uh, you know, here's my hat sort of thing. And she's like, no, I'm just going to hold on to it for you until you come back. Right. Which is kind of like when he was um, leaving uh, Chio early, or excuse me, that's who he was reminded of, when he's leaving Setsu earlier. Uh, she's not as terribly saddened when he leaves, but. Um, oh, actually, that was another instance of him having money, uh, like a confusion about money, too. He was giving her money before he left to fight those guys on the beach earlier. And she's like, no, it's not like that. She was basically denying him pay the payment um, 
for the night they spent together. Right. And he's like, no, it's for the guy who let us borrow this house. Pay him instead. So it's that <laughs> weird deflection that he does. He does it all the time. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't like to directly pay for things. <laughs> yeah, or, or draw attention to his own mortality. So yeah, right. he's like, yeah, just hold on to the hat while I'm away. Uh, so he goes to meet these folks at a, a more open area uh, battleground. And again, like with all the other scenes of sword fighting in this movie, incredibly well lit. You see everything as he takes on these guys. Uh, one or two at a time, too, until it's down to just kan- Kanabe, who uh, he then dispatches pretty quickly as well. Um, and then, of course, enter Yoshiro, who... Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it should be mentioned that when Yoshiro was kicked out of uh, Boss Sugigara's house, um, he was then pursued by somebody... Uh, hired by Sugigoro to kill him, mm. and at which point, but upon killing him, uh, has now caused the same gang of Yakuza to go after Yoshiro as well. Right, okay, so that's who's that's who he notices approaching uh, the same area. So he's, right. he's keeping his cover, because he knows that they would take him out as well, uh, but Zatoichi is basically out in the open, so he lets them... Uh, try to make their way towards him. And now the big confrontation and the big revelation about who Yoshiro actually is. Um, Yoshiro then reveals that, yes, he is the man that Chiyo left Zatoichi for. However, in Zatoichi's rage of taking his arm, Chiyo also left him because he too has become crippled. And um, Zatoichi... Uh, then mentions the fact that Yoshiro is in fact Zatoichi's brother. Which is the uh, the big revelation between the two characters, which wasn't mentioned at any point in the film until right now. Um, and, and then at this point, they engage in what I think is the longest fight in the, in the movie series so far. Um, still pretty short, but you actually see some struggle between Zatoichi and his opponent here as opposed to him just swiftly dispatching gangs and gangs of people. Yeah, and uh, when you are talking about Zatoichi's fighting style earlier, and uh, Yoshiro's too, they're both very unique swordsmen. Like, they're not doing traditional fencing here. No, uh, not at all. So there's a lot of rage on Yoshiro's part wanting to dispose of the man who made him uh, armless his own brother and um, Zatoichi basically trying to defend um, and not kill like one of his blood relatives. But it gets, it gets pretty close. Like they both get um, some pretty critical hits in on each other. And it's a vicious fight too. Like it is, there's a lot of emotion in this. Uh, like you were saying, there's a lot of rage on Yoshiro's part. There's a lot of rage in this fight between these two. Um, like there is maybe not so much on Zatoichi's side, but there's so much just hate built up with Yoshiro. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, the animosity is there for Zatoichi as well. But as they're fighting one another, like it just seems so like, it's very tense and very like, uh, you, you grind your teeth a little bit because you start to get really into it despite how short it actually is. In retrospect, the actual fight itself is only a few, maybe a few minutes tops. Um, 
of course, uh, while they're, uh, while they're fighting, um, Yoshiro's assistant, who once again, I think is a non-character, starts to warn him that the Yakuza are closing in on them, and which point he promptly escapes. Yeah, and Yoshiro tells him to go at some point anyway, but it takes yeah. him a while, and he finally does, and I, I haven't looked ahead either, but I'm wondering if we'll see that character again. I think it's certainly possible. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Wakayami is, uh, is in a later Zatoichi film, although I'm not sure in what context. So I don't know if he's playing a different character or flashback. I'm not so sure. But I'm wondering also if that character is going to come back as well. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. Well, as the fight's winding down, Zatoichi has the upper hand. And <clears throat> from one perspective, I thought that he actually stabbed uh, Yoshiro cleanly through. And I'm not sure if that's the case, because Yoshiro hasn't died. And in fact, he's asking for Zatoichi to uh, dispose of him before Sukigoro's men come for him. Because he knows like death at their hands is going to be much worse than uh, what Zatoichi could willingly do. Uh, there right. might be some mercy on Zatoichi then. And, um, yeah, it's it's hard to say because it, it, he seems to stab him from with his back facing the camera, so you're not exactly sure how he does it, but he uh, jams Yoshiro's sword, his own sword, right into his stomach. Um, at which point Yoshiro is dying, and, the of course, boss Sugigoro's gang arrives. And which I think is interesting is that Toichi manages to drag um, Yoshiro away from this fight scene, despite the fact that there are literally like 20 to 30 men surrounding them. Like you would think in any realistic situation, they'd be completely outnumbered to the point where all these men could just gang up on him and kill them immediately. And um, he seems to just be able to, I guess, fend them off like flies without actually ever coming into contact with them as they cross this bridge and jump into the river. Yeah, the entire pack of, kind of looks like 40 or 50 men are totally hesitant to make any advances towards Zatoichi. So he's got a pretty clear way to the bridge, even with other men on the other side of the bridge. Uh, and yeah, realizes where he is and just takes the risk of jumping into the water with his brother. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but um, Yo Yoshiro mentions that he killed Chiyo at this point, like because Zatoichi asked what became of her, and yeah. Shiro says that he killed her. Well, later on in the film, after they've jumped into this lake, they uh, find refuge in a, a hidden, I guess, a house somewhere that uh, the young boy priest brings them to, and Yoshiro reveals that Chiyo is in fact still alive. But he doesn't know where she is. Um, which also makes me wonder if she's going to make an appearance at some point in time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's another... Uh, it's another thing that, like, with the first film, as we were discussing earlier, the ending kind of left it open. Um, or it could have just ended there. Uh, but the way that he's kind of leaving people in waiting or there's people waiting on him seems to be how these films might trail each other. Like in the first one, Otane is left 
waiting. So it seemed like there wasn't closure there. But if you left that one film, it might have been fine to say, like, no, that's just how it ends. He leaves, Otane's lonely, the end. Right. But they were able to draw that back into this one. So I think it's it's not quite like a uh, a serial sort of thing where they had to touch on these aspects. But I'm, yeah, I'm curious too if uh, if some of these characters will come back. Some of the ones mentioned. Well, as uh, as it goes, Zatuichi is enraged by the fact that uh, his brother just died in front of him, um, and he feels that because. You know, as of now, there's a lot of, he's, you know, been responsible for two deaths because of this Yakuza boss. Uh, Zatoichi goes to pursue Sugigoro and his little squad of samurai, confronts them, and right as a battle is uh, starting, the movie ends. Like, that's it. Just right as he draws his sword, we cut to credits. Um... So, I mean, in terms of being open-ended, like the first movie, this one definitely leaves a lot to be questioned as to what's going to happen next, which, uh, from what I know of the new tale of Zatoichi, it will be the conclusion of the story. Yeah, at least like his travels between uh, the uh, Sasagawa and Ioka gang territories. At least that's what I'm anticipating. Because uh, in it, yeah. I'll just have to jump to other short end stories, unless there's more huge arcs like this one. I'm sure there are, but I believe. Oh wait, no, actually, I think I read that there. Um, these are the only three movies that are completely related to one another. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, also, like, I'm not totally sure as to how how related the third movie is going to be to the. To the second movie, um, I'm sure it won't be a direct sequel, but at least you know pick up enough that we get a vague idea of what happened at the end of the this film. At least I'm hoping, instead of it just cutting to like a few years later or something like that, that would be a little uh, a little uh, bothersome. Like it picks up at this large battle. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping we see something like that, or at least like. The aftermath would be fine too. Sure, sure. But, <laughs> but he's more. going. Yeah, I mean, even if you open to just a bunch of dead dudes sitting around Zat, you know, lying around Zatuichi, and he's just like, okay, now on to the next thing. I mean, if they just, you know, if we just close on this like fight and then nothing becomes of it, it'd be a little disappointing. And I, I mean, we could easily go onto Wikipedia and find out what happens in the third film, but I don't think we should do that. I think we should just wait and see. Mm hmm. Um, I agree. So, what are your what are your final thoughts on the tale of Zatoichi continues? Um, it was more action packed than I anticipated. Uh, I was very thrown by the breakneck speed of this film, like how fast everything's going. In regards to this film, like it's it's not like Mad Max Fury Road fast. It's uh, it's it's much faster than the first one. There's a lot of like meditation in the first one about just how powerful Zatoichi is. And in this one, they just show it um, immediately. And I thought that was really cool. I like this one a little better uh, because of that rapidity, like how fast it is. 
yet uh, the first one I think has a slightly better story. I I agree. Um, I mean, like the I'm not at all going to complain that there was more action because, like, I I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean, if you're going to give me the premise of uh, a blind man who's like an extraordinarily skilled sword or sword fighter, I'm going to want to see what he can do a lot more than hear about it. Yeah, um, I think that the first one. I believe that both these movies do a good job in what they're trying to establish. I believe the first one did a great job of establishing who Zatoichi is and giving you a taste of what he can do. And I believe that this movie, being the more action-packed of the two, kind of gives you more, almost more of what I suppose the audience at the time would be looking for. Because obviously they're going to go watch this movie because they want to see more Zatoichi. They want to see more of what he can do. And I think... um, Having Tomoshiro Watayama, excuse me, um, having uh, Tomoshiro Wakayama, um, Tomi Saburo, wow, I can't believe how bad I am at these names, um, as his uh, as opponent was very exciting because I am a big fan of Lone Wolf and Cub, um, and of course, you know, Shogun Assassin, which is the same thing, but... Um, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, this also isn't the first instance that we get like a lot of famous uh, Chenbara characters showing up in uh, showing up in these films, especially with uh, Satoichi meets uh, Yojimbo with uh, Toshiro Mifune coming up. That's going to be a little while though. I think that's in the twenties somewhere. Yeah, it's going to be exciting though too. Like I, my only difference with uh, with European with what you have to say about it is that I actually kind of like the first one a little more. Like, I think the first one was a little more in control of its story, whereas this one felt kind of rushed. And as far as I know about the production history of this movie, this was pretty much like, uh, how do you pronounce the name of the production company? DA? Uh, Dae. Dae, um, knew they had something special on their hands and they wanted to give people more as soon as they could. Not to say that this movie was hastily, thrown together to the point that it's like poorly made. It's just, it's pretty obvious that they were working on a deadline. Um, and that's fine because it's better, you know, it's in with the nature of like films in like the sixties and seventies, like it makes a lot of sense to just try to make as many as you can. Um, not necessarily that that's a better way of making films, but it works, especially for films like this. Um, I, yeah, I would say overall I enjoyed The Tale of Zatoichi more, but not by a whole lot. I think this movie is perfectly fine. I mean, it's a good movie, of course. Yeah. I'm not sure if the Zatoichi series has any stinkers or not. Um, I guess we'll find out eventually if they do. Mm -hmm. But um, overall, I mean, I'm still pretty satisfied with the series. I'm really curious to see what happens next. I guess I could watch the third one at any time now, since that's going to be our next film. Right. Yeah, I'd like to see how this wraps up, too. Um, yeah, I thought this was very enjoyable. Uh, I don't know how it would be how it would go to recommend this one as like a person's first Satoichi film. I was thinking about that, and I mean, I think that there's a disservice to what the uh, arch, the overarching story for these three films is trying to tell. Yeah, the first one is really good. And establishes a lot about this mythos of character where the second one is almost like it's almost like dessert in some ways. Like it's just rewarding you for uh, 
rewarding you for your patience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because then everything is just an exposed fight scene. Um, so yeah, it. I think going by the way it was intended, or at least the way it was chronologically released, uh, would be the way to go with these, to watch the first one, then the second one. Yeah, and possibly the third. Um, it's Yeah, it seems that like it would be really hard to tell somebody that they should watch this film first. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to really say, hey, you should watch this one first, um, instead of just telling them to watch The Tale of Zatoichi first. I think in the later films, you can kind of just... As far as I know, they're not connected with these first three movies. So in the later films, you could, of course, just throw in any of them as a, uh, I guess, a sample of uh, the series. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how those are like standalone features. I'm kind of wondering if we should also cover Yojimbo, too, since there is a Zatoichi versus Yojimbo coming up. Maybe that might give us a better idea of what, uh, of what to expect from that movie. I mean, I've seen Yojimbo before, but I don't know how it's going to relate to this film aside from maybe it's just the character showing up and that's really it. Or if they're going to delve into what happens in that film. Hmm. Um, anywho. Uh, so I guess that really does it for this movie. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we had a, uh, a segment last week called blind leading the blind. Which is, of course, talking about characters who may have been influenced by Zatoichi or related to Zatoichi um, in some way or another. And uh, I have one this week uh, regarding, of course, the uh, movie Ninja Scroll, which is one of my favorite animes. In fact, I, I actually believe it was the first like R-rated anime I ever watched. And that was like uh, a mid-90s release, or was it earlier? Yeah. I believe it was 1993. Okay. And uh, we, uh, we actually covered it on our anime episode on Banshee Jam. Um, I mentioned that this was an anime that I saw as a child, a cartoon, as I called it at the time, where there was nudity and blood and killing, and I didn't know you could do that in cartoons at that point. So I was uh, pretty intrigued. But um, Mujuro Utsusu who is the fourth demon of Kimon, which is uh, the set of uh, the eight demons of Kimon or the villains in the movie Ninja Scroll who our hero Jubei has to fight, um, is a blind swordsman who challenges Jubei to a fight to the death in a bamboo forest. And uh, just like Zatoichi, he, there's a lot of uh, zoom-ins and highlights on his ears as, of course, he uses his hearing as his uh, skill mm -hmm. or as his ability to fight. Um, he loses because uh, another character, a ninja that's helping Jubei, um, sticks a sword into a piece of bamboo, which uh, Majuro uh, hits with his sword, thinking it's Jubei, and Jubei sneaks up and stabs him, which I guess is um, a logical end to that fight, I suppose. Uh, it's kind of hard to say, <laughs> but... Um, of course, the influences are definitely there. This is the late 90s. Atuichi is all, you know, all the films at this point have been produced. Um, a lot of even the camera work in this anime with, uh, like I said, the camera zooming up on his ears and like showing the fight between him, between Mujuro and uh, Jubei is also completely silent, just like in the Zatoichi films as okay. well. 
So it's not so, just like a nod to the trope of the blind swordsman. It's actually uh, it's a very heavy nod to the films. It's very, very, very similar. Okay. And, um, I mean, it's an obvious nod. I wouldn't say it's like a, du- like a direct, direct, like, influence, whereas, like, you're basically seeing a Zatoichi character all over again. But um, I'm not sure if, like, the idea of, like, the blind swordsman existed before Zatoichi in Japanese culture. But if it didn't, then, I mean, obviously, this is where, this is where that reference comes from. Right. And you've seen Ninja Scroll, correct? I have. Many years ago or many, recently? many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like late nineties or early two thousands. Which um I believe I mentioned it in our Banty Jam review of Ninja Scroll Scroll that it reminded me of Zatuichi as well. So Oh nice. So I mean that was a quick uh not quite a blind leading the blind like you had with Stick from Daredevil, but you know, quick little thing we could throw in there. I think it works. I had not made that connection, uh, because honestly, like having it been so long since I've seen Ninja Scroll, I'd almost forgotten that that was one of the opponents that he faced. Uh, I remember the large rock guy. Yeah, the golem. <laughs> He's. I only ever remember the golem <laughs> and the blind swordsman. That's it. Yeah. Up until like I actually watched the movie again. Um, you know what I did forget to do at the beginning of our show? What's that? I did not plug anything. Um, so, uh. You, of course, uh, listening at home can email us at the blind, at, uh, I'm sorry, not the, but blindpodsman at gmail.com. Or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash blindpodsman. Um, we also have a website, blindpodsman.blogspot.com, which uh, you can pick up uh, our new episodes and our old episodes and also um, comment on any of our posts, any of our episodes, if you have any feedback. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes because that would be really swell. Um, we uh, we actually do have a new review, which I'm sure is from somebody we know, but I'm not totally sure who it is quite yet. Um, uh, it is from Alex Penn, A-L-X-P-E-N, titled Cumulus and Zatoichi. Five stars. What else would you ask for? Question mark. A number one. Uh, considering that not only were you just called by your proper Christian name in the title of that comment. Sure. But, uh, uh, cumulus. Also, uh, as the use of the kissing contest slang, A number one, I'm assuming this is probably somebody we know, which is fine. Uh, everybody we know should review the show because we review all your shows too. Yeah. And thanks for the review, Alex. That was yeah, mighty generous of you. Um, so yeah, I think that about wraps it up for the blind podsman this week. So we will be back with episode number four, uh, the new tale of Zatoichi from 1963 and also the first Zatoichi film in color. So we are out of the black and white era. So Parker, if you're listening, it is now safe for you to watch these movies. (laughs) Yep. In glorious color, glorious technicolor. Okay, well, uh, that does it. And uh, for the Blind Podsman, I am Patrick. And for Jason, good night. <laughs> Semigonai
切っちゃならねえ人を切った時には目先が真っ暗になっちまう<笑>目先や鼻から真っ暗だよ風に追われたさすらいものよ死んでゆくときゃ一人一